So if I've got my, uh, you know, my, my DeWalt circular saw with a carbide mm-hmm. blade on it, um, can I break into your safe? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, you know, I'm not, we're, we're not saying our safes are stronger. What yeah. we're saying, what we, what we propose is our safes are smaller. So you yeah. locate them. Again, locate them where thieves don't look. If you came into my house where I'm having a party, I'm entertaining, a bunch of guys coming over, I'm some scotch and cigars in the backyard, whatever we're doing. You'd never know I own firearms. Yeah. There's no, there's no clues in my house that there's guns in the house because all my safes are discreetly located. Yet I'm never more than two seconds away from a firearm. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup, and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. Yeah, so from where I am, it's 76 miles to the closest stoplight, and it's about five hours to the closest parking meter. Wow. What's the closest, like, grocery store? That's always the one that's... You know, there it, it's not too bad. Uh, there's there's a grocery store in town, you know, 15 yeah. minutes away. But I'm also fortunate because, you know, I get to live on this cool ranch, this old family ranch. So we don't need the grocery store for much. We've got greenhouses and orchards, cattle. We've got lots of, lots of wild game. We've got a river that runs through the place. There's, besides like toilet paper and scotch, there's not a lot that I have to go to the <laughs> grocery store for. <laughs> not a bad way to go. I'll tell you that it's uh, I'm doing uh, I'm now pure carnivore diet. So my, uh, I've got a, we've got a hunting ranch. So I try to hunt and fill my freezer, but I, I do need to supplement with uh, we'll say purchased beef. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's a lot of people that get a little bit high and mighty and hunting about their food being superior to anything that might come from a grocery store. and I don't, I don't support that at all. There, there just isn't a big enough wild game resource to, to support the population. You know, it's a privilege for the people they get to get to eat wild game. It's a privilege for people who can afford to see clean, healthy meat from the grocery store. I think it's fine. It is. And when you're doing the carnivore diet, truly the fat content of game is way too low. 
Right. Yeah. I, I could not survive on that easily. I do about 30 to 35% fat. And uh, normally that ends up being um, ribeyes and uh, strip steaks with the fat cap still on. I cut my, I buy the whole thing, cut my own and leave yeah. all the fat on. And uh, people think I'm nuts, but you know what? I'm healthier now than I've been in the last 20 years. So it's working. I love hearing that. You know, I got uh, one of these, uh, these steak lockers. It's like a, a refrigerator that's built for dry aging meat. Okay. And it's not that much different from a normal refrigerator, except that you can control the temperature to the degree and humidity to the percentage. And then it's got a UV light in it to kill any surface bacteria. So what I've been doing is buying like whole primal New York's, putting them in there. And whenever I need a steak, I just pull it out and cut off whatever steaks I need. And it's been really fun on this first one to see what the difference is between a steak that's been dry aged for a week versus two weeks versus three weeks. And we're at like 45 days right now. And I'm going to cut off a couple more for dinner. But there's a there's a level of complexity to that flavor that changes with, it? You know, really every day. That's fat. Now, how long will a, if you buy like a whole strip, how long will that, how long can you age it? So 30 days is where it really starts to matter at all. And okay. then uh, around 45 to 60 days is is really when you're hitting sort of the, the peak of that complexity that most people are going to enjoy. And then you can go well beyond 60 days to 100 days or more. I've dry aged wild game for five months before just in the open air and it's tremendous, but it can get a little bit funky and get a little bit of a blue cheese kind of flavor to it after 60 days. But most people will eat a 45 day dry aged steak and, and, you know, it might be the best steak they've ever had in their life. Well, now what temperature do you, are you, what do you set it up at? Like 38? Is that the... That's exactly what I have it set up at. It's 38 okay. degrees and 70% humidity. Really? Okay. So that's higher humidity. Cause I always like, I mean, where I am here, if I'm hunting, it, this year was so warm, we, we couldn't really do much aging of anything. Um, you know, you're going out at 70, 68 degrees out, but normal hunting season here, I'm in central New York. It's, you know, if I'm 35 to 43 degrees, 44 degrees, I'm good to go. Yeah. You know, this is out. That, that meal stay cold. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. So, where are you located, sir? Um, we, I'm in. I live in Casanova, New York. My Securit is located in Syracuse, New York. Okay. So I'm about thirty minute drive up into the hills. I live on a little lake in the, in kind of the foothills to the Catskill Mountains, and then uh, about twelve minutes from my house, we've got a five hundred acre hunting ranch that we're building out right now. We purchased uh, two years ago, and it's a spectacular piece of land. We're just, we're having a ball with it. That's awesome. I'm curious how how the creativity that's required to be a musician lends itself to to the creativity that's required to make gun safes. Um, I don't know if it is. It's interesting um, for people listening. Yeah, I, I was a professional guitar player for 12 years, and uh, 10 and I just ended that career, and I got into other things. Ended up building gun safes. It's um. I find music to be very, um, it's not people say oh, it's mathematical. No, it's not. Um, but I find spatial relations in how I look at, especially if you're playing more complex, I played like heavy metal bands, but I've also played in jazz bands. 
and swing. I've, I've done a lot of different stuff music-wise. And I look at spatial relations as how things relate to each other. Um, I did a lot of computer programming early in my, when I was no longer a musician getting into sales, I did a lot of programming just because nobody knew how to write websites. And I started doing it myself. And I found that to be very much a spatial relations exercise, looking at databases. And when you look at gun storage, it is 100% spatial relations. It's just looking at things three-dimensionally. Um, and for, for us, you know, for what we do, you know, we came into the military space having no idea what it was and developed a solution for the military having not seen what they were using really. And we just, we were presented with a problem. So we just said, well, how, how, how am I going to solve this problem? And, you know, Hey, do you want to come tour some armor? It's like, no, we did because I don't want to see what you're using. The minute I see what's there, that's going to influence my decisions in terms of finding a solution. I'd rather approach things from a totally, a green, totally almost naive standpoint of I have no idea what you're doing. However, your problem you described, I could solve like this. And we created uh, our first weapon storage system kind of going by that method. Just, all right, guys, it's got to be flexible. It's got to be modular. It's got to be adjustable. It's got to hold a wide variety of weapons in a military armory. And it has to be so simple that there's no directions. And that's kind of how we approached it. They really liked it. That was 2002. And I was working with a Canadian manufacturer. And then we kind of had a, Steve ran that business. He and I were good friends. I was pushing him to make changes in the system because it really was not suited perfectly for U.S. military use. The locking system really wasn't what the military wanted. He was hesitating to make changes. And he also was allowing other dealers to sell the product in the U.S. And I was doing all the design work. So we, we separated, parted ways, and I went off on my own and developed, was, I know, was Secure It broke away from them, and we developed our Secure It tactical weapon storage platform, which is now what we call Cradle Grid, and we did that in 2008. Uh, we launched that product. By 2011, we were the largest supplier to the U.S. military for weapon storage systems. So it was, uh, once we came up with the solution, it was, uh, they just loved it. So it was the storage system that you came up with for like for armories for units or was it for storing individual weapons or how, what did that was, actually look like we really developed for large armories and it really was more systematic about a problem that was presented um, i started weapon storage in 2002 i got into it i was running a business selling laptop storage cabinets and then racks for storing computer tapes. It was all, my whole background was on the computer storage side of things. And it was a freak phone call. A guy just said, hey, can you store an MP5? I'm like, sure. What's an MP5? Little submachine gun. So that's when I first looked at weapon <laughs> storage. I had no idea what this was. And we started just playing with it, having fun with it, working with a Canadian company, um, developing the solution. And in 2007, it was USAFIC, which is U.S. Army Special Forces Command. Now that's just part of SOCOM. It was, it was Army Special Forces put out a solicitation for an arms room assessment. They were facing a problem of all of their armories were failing inspections. The military had transitioning from the M16 to the M4, going from a 39-inch standard rifle, all the same, to the M4, which is really a modular weapon system. They're flexible, adjustable. 
the SOCOM guys had what they call SOP mod kits. You had all these attachments. So they could be storing the rifle with or without optics, with IR illuminators. There's all these different ways this gun could be configured. And the weapon racks they had, all of them, were designed for a standard 39-inch gun. Plus, all the gear associated with you know post-9-11 military development, all the high-value gear had to be stored in armories because it was... You know, there was some technical stuff to it. It was top secret in many ways. It was stuff they didn't want to, they needed to maintain it, and it was expensive. So the armories, instead of just storing guns, were now storing, organizing all this high-value gear. Their armories were a mess. And this is Army Special Force, those would be the best guys. So they put out this solicitation. We became aware of it, and we scheduled a meeting with a colonel who was running this thing down in Fort Bragg. Now, Secure It was a three-person company. And we really didn't know much about this, but nobody did. There, there was no there was no weapon storage company um, out there. So we went to the meeting, um, Gary Myrick and uh, I, and we, you know, we're at the hotel in the morning. We're like, you know, our shirts white enough? You know, can we pull this off? Because we had we didn't know what we were doing, other than we knew how to sell and we were confident. Walked into the meeting, and we it was Colonel sitting in his office. I walked right up to him. I just said. Hello, sir. My name's Tom Kubinick. I'm considered the leading authority on small arm storage, armory design. I believe we're the company to do this. And we sat down, we talked for about 25 minutes, had a great conversation. <laughs> and uh, we walked out of the meeting. And Gary's like, what the? He's like, what the hell was that? I said, Gary, you know what? Nobody knows this. Nobody knows the space. We just walked in and I just claimed that we are the leading authority. And there's nobody to dispute us. Nobody can say we're not because there's nobody here. There's no, right. There is nobody. And I said, Gary, we got to back this up though, if we win this. So we were up against, you know, L3, um, Harris, all the big you know, general dynamics, these big defense contractors, and they're probably bidding millions of dollars for this thing. Our bid came in less than half a million dollars. It wasn't a big, you know, it was a lot of travel, a lot of stuff. And it was a, it was a time cost, cost plus kind of contract. We probably end up doing the whole thing for 350,000. And, uh, but I spent the next 18 months traveling all over the country, going to every single special forces armory. And I was there, Gary and I, it was me or Gary and I for a day to two days where we would sit, interview the armor, watch the workflow, you know, survey the space, take lots of photographs, but really sit down and just sit and watch how these guys operate, watch what their challenges are. And this is access that nobody has ever had. And we just sat there writing notes and just collecting data for 18 months. At the end of that 18 months, we presented a report to Bragg as to this is why your armories are failing and said, and this is what we think will solve that problem. And that's when we developed Cradle Grid or the tactical weapon storage platform. And that system, you know, we use what I call at the time and method Home Depot development. We went to Home Depot. I was walking the aisles and, and Lowe's and just all these stores looking, how do people store stuff? What, I mean, again, I don't need to reinvent. I don't need to invent something new if it already exists. Can we take existing things and adapt them? Can we make, you know, what's the simplest solution? And we came up with our system, the actual cradle that holds the gun, it's one piece, and it'll hold an MP5, a M4, up to 50 cals Mark 19 shoulder launch systems. In our weapon racks, an armor can walk up to the rack, and it doesn't matter what weapon he has in his hand. You can adjust the rack on the fly, put the gun in, no tools required, and walk away. It's extremely quick, extremely simple. And that piece, I just, I bought a whole bunch of airsoft guns, different different military guns, 
had a machine shop make me a 50 cal, um, which we still have. It's beautiful. And I've got a Mark 19 that's, they look exactly like real um, heavy guns. They're, they're fake. And then we, I went out with wood and just started carving and cutting and coming up with ideas. And we came up with the cradle that worked. Then we had CAD drawings done and had it made. And that, you know, that was 2008. By 2011, we were, we were rock stars in, in armories. And we were, just, we were building armories all over the world. Today, Secured is the global leader in military weapons storage and armory design. Um, it sounds more impressive than it is. I mean, it's cool. It's fun. I love what we do and we're good at it. It's a really niche market. It's not, it's, we're not like this huge company. In fact, the retail side of our business is now considerably larger than the military side of the business. You know, the military I, market is 17 million a year in its biggest year. Right now, yeah. it's probably closer to six. The retail right. market is 600 million a year. It's, wow. it, it's almost a no brainer as to where the money's being spent. Yeah. You know, I think an experience that, that Marines almost universally have is coming back from, from the field and some serialized item in the armory not being accounted for and the amount of pain that follows that is impossible for a civilian to understand so you know you you may have just been out for 10 days 14 days 30 days and come back and you know everything gets checked back into the armory and they're missing something and what is usually the case is they're in fact not missing something it's there but they've got to recount everything and there are thousands and thousands of serialized items in there and until all those things are found nobody's leaving so you want nothing more than to take the first shower that you've had in a couple of weeks and you know try and scrape some of the ticks and chiggers and garbage off your skin and the armories are are largely antiquated and they're poor organizational systems that that cause a lot of problems and massive inefficiencies for an organization that needs to gain every efficiency that it can. Yeah, no, it's, you're, you're spot on. In fact, I've seen, I mean, I've been on a base. It was actually army base where an M9 was missing handgun and we couldn't leave. I mean, the, the, the gates are shut down. They, they shut the base down in, in and out until they find that gun. And they, yeah. they found it pretty quickly. Now, one of the things, now, where were you in the Marine Corps? Mostly in Camp Lejeune. Okay. So, we're hoping to do Lejeune probably next year, but we're just finishing up a project in Okinawa and we're calling this armory of the future. So we've got a system now where the guns are the easy part. They're all stored, all the serialized gear. Um, we took a page out of our old data store. We used to store backup tapes for back when companies had thousands of backup tapes for their computer systems. We did, they used what was called slot addressable memory storage, where you have a backup tape with a serial number and a slot in a rack with a matching number. So now you walk into the armories in Okinawa, all the serialized gear, you pull out a drawer, it's foam that's cut to fit all, like it's optics that fits all the optics. The serial number on the optic matches the serial number in the drawer. So you just open the drawer and, and you can just scan it. And you see that everything's there. Their inventory goes from, you know, taking two days, serialized count, serialized inventory to hours. It's, it's really, really fast. We're just finishing the COVID really screwed us up. We were supposed to be done two and a half years ago. And Japan was so difficult with COVID. They just shut us down. And we're now just, we should have the project completed. Our target's the end of July. 
in fact, I'm going to be out there in June um, just doing some tours, meeting with some of the guys in command and taking a lot of photos. But it's going to turn people upside down when they see what, how these armories function. And we think we're going to roll this solution out across the Marine Corps, and they're hoping to do big army with it. Let me bring this down to yeah. a level that impacts a few more people. Yeah. What happens when a criminal, when a thief enters a home with the intent of breaking into a gun safe? Like what, what goes through their mind? Like how does that break down? Because I think that people either don't think about it or what, what they think is going to happen isn't accurate. It's yeah, you know, it's funny. We I spent a lot of time in this. I've actually I did a lot of I spoke on this at a lot of events years ago, and about and I just studying FBI crime data, and it's out there. You can find it. It takes some time. You got to dig into it. A thief breaks into your home. This is what happens. They break in. Most break-ins occur during the day. They're gonna come into your home. They're gonna hit master bathroom, master bedroom, and closet. Home office den, dining room, they're going to then leave the house or in and out of your house. Typically about nine minutes is average. The minute they find something of value, they leave. They're looking for prescription drugs, number one thing. That's why they get master bathroom. If they don't find prescription drugs, they're looking for jewelry and valuables in the master bedroom. Home office den for simple electronics they can sell. Dining room, if there's silver or something of value, and then they're out of the house. That's the bulk of all break-ins. So when you look at firearm storage, now, if they know there's a safe in the home, they will go to the safe. And they're going to either go den, basement. There's only so many places you can put a big, heavy safe. Um, if it's a pro, they're going to have the safe open. I can open almost any gun safe in America and, and remove a gun in under 25 seconds. I don't know anything about locks. I don't know anything about doors. I am not a locksmith. I don't even, I ignore them. I simply show up with a circular saw that I bought in 1987. It's a skill saw, a little, you know, it was $39 at, at Lowe's or Home Depot. And I buy a carbide blade that's used for cutting rebar in the concrete industry. The blades are about $44 or so, between $30 and $45. And it's a five and a half inch carbide blade. I mount it up on the saw and I simply walk to the side of the safe. I don't care how thick that metal is. I'm cutting it at the rate that I cut three quarter inch plywood. These saw blades are unbelievable. Again, they're designed to cut up to half-inch rebar all day on job sites. It's way faster than trying to use torches or other ways if you're doing big concrete work. And these blades have changed how a lot of this industry works, but you open, you open gun safes. I just cut a 12-inch by 12-inch hole in the side of the safe. The actual saw work takes me about 15 seconds. It's really fast. I reach in and pull the guns out. And if you look at actual data on safe break-ins, Safes are cut open. They're not pride open. All the, you know, the industry always shows how pride proof they are. And they focus all the attention on the doors with extra bolts. If you up your security level on your safe, when you order it, spend a lot more money, you get corner bolts, you get steel plates, a drill plate, a whole plate door. But when you look at actual data, safes are cut open from the side or the back. So when I look at in your home, though, firearm storage, if you want to look at security in your home, first off, if you got valuables like you got nice jewelry, nice watches. Don't store them in your bedroom. Don't store them in your closet. Safest place for valuables. And we're looking at actually making a solution for this. I think it'd be kind of cool. Kitchen pantry. Yeah. Thieves don't go into kitchens. They're not interested in your food. Their time is their biggest enemy. They want in and out quickly. That's the safest place in your home. Laundry room. If you got yeah. a laundry room, again, a little cabinet in there, put your jewelry, put your watches. 
they're just not looking. They're not, they're not interested in your laundry. So sure. when you look at firearm storage in a home, what we look at is if you're going to secure firearms, hey, if you're going to own firearms, they've got to be locked. Our mission, if every gun in America was properly secured, there's a lot of tragedies that have happened that you can trace them back and had the guns been secured, they wouldn't have happened. So we look at if you're going to own firearms and you're going to have them locked, why not lock them in a manner in a location that gives you a tactical advantage? It doesn't cost any more, but it, it, it can make you so much safer. So I look at what we call the principles of decentralized storage. So I would look at a home and say, okay, people sleep in the bedroom. They feel vulnerable. One firearm and a small fast access safe. If it's a husband and wife and they each are trained shooters, one per person, nothing more in a master bedroom. I then look at kitchen. People spend a lot of time, modern homes have big kitchens that tie into their dining area. People, it's, it's a place where you spend a lot of time. In my house, I've got an agile six gun cabinet in my pantry. I've got a pretty good sized pantry. And that cabinet, in that is part of just my gun collection, but I've also got an AR-15 racked, ready to roll, very fast access. Anywhere near that safe, I'm, I'm in, I've got the gun in my hand in two, two seconds, maybe three seconds max. It's very quick. Um, also, there's an exit point from the home out of most kitchens. I then look at a closet next to your front door. Thieves ignore closets for the most part. They're not interested in coats. In my front hall closet next to my door, I've got another agile cabinet with six rifles, lever actions. I got some handguns. Just again, part of my collection. I got a lot of guns. But I also have a pump shotgun with some rounds in the tube, and I've got a racked AR-15 at my front door. When you look at your den, not a particularly secure room. There's not a lot of areas for discretion. Small handgun safe. I mean, if you really want to deck your house out, do a small handgun safe. If you've got a really large collection, uh, I've got a guest bedroom in my home extra bedroom. Kids are now growing up. College are gone. Guest bedroom with a, a one bed, either stripped or neatly made, a table with nothing on it but a lamp, a chair, and a couple pieces of generic art in the wall, and nothing else. The room is clean. If a thief is taking the time to run a house, he's going to open that door. He's not going to waste his time. In the closet of my guest room, I've got a quad system. I've got 24. I got capacity for 24 rifles, a boatload of handguns, and a ton of ammo. In my house, that bedroom's at the end of a hallway. So that is our, in a, in a home invasion scenario, we get to that room and I've got a constriction point, that hallway, they'll never get to us. I, I mean, I live in an area where I really don't worry about it. I mean, we lay this out, but if you're truly concerned, you look at your home from a standpoint of, if I'm home and, I, and most people choose not to carry a firearm in their home, I wouldn't, <laughs> I'm home. You get home, you ask me to take things off. I just look at where, where are you? Where do you spend time? And look for discrete locations. Everything that we make from our smallest handgun up to our big answer safes, big double door safes, they're all considered fast access storage, meaning they're all with practice two to three second access to a firearm. So the, the idea that you can, you know, I see this all the time. Yeah, I've got a great big safe with all the stuff in it, but I do keep a shotgun under my bed or I keep a gun here, keep a gun there unsecured. And when you look at the data on accidents, on you know child accidents, on unauthorized use, um, crime or accidents, in so many cases, had that firearm been locked, does the tragedy happen? And the one that comes to mind for me always is uh, Sandy Hook. Lonza walked into his mom's house, picked up her rifle 
and shot her twice in the chest with it, probably before she could even say a word. Had she had her guns properly secured, meaning the kid doesn't have access, does she have a chance to realize, my son's blowing a fuse, I need to do something? I don't know, but you know, we never got that chance. If the chain had been broken, right. big tragedy that doesn't happen. And uh, there's so many instances where we look at the data and say, you know what? If the damn gun, they, there's a kid that went to school a while ago and, and shot his teacher and the parents said, oh, the gun was locked. I'm saying, no, it wasn't. It might have been in a safe. But if your 10-year-old has the combination, it's not locked. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, it's, you just got to look at it different. That's all extremely interesting and, and a little bit frightening. You know, when I was growing up, I think is when we started to see fireproof safes. And it was all very confusing. And we didn't know whether you wanted like the heaviest safe possible. The fire ratings seemed complicated. And then when I talked to guys about how long house fires burn, we're like, yeah, this is largely irrelevant. You know, a lot of these guns are, are just getting getting cooked in safes that are claiming to be fireproof. Um, now we're moving into an age where there's new technology like biometrics and RFID for, you know, how to access these safes. How should people evaluate what they need today? It, it's a complicated world. There's a lot of options and we don't really understand what they are. There is. And a couple of things that people really should realize, the fire rating side of the industry really is nonsense. Um, a true fire rated safe. Now we make the true safe. Um, AMSEC also makes a, fire, a safe that I would classify as true fire rated. It's ridiculously heavy, ridiculously expensive. Um, our safe went two hours, 20 minutes in a test. I would give it a 20 minute rating because the tests are static. The air is not moving in an oven when you test a safe. Like a 60-minute safe is in an oven for 60 minutes. The air is not moving. Fires mm. are violent. The air is moving quick. If you put a pizza in an oven at 500 degrees and you go home, you know, get your tombstone pizza, you can put your hand in that oven at 500 degrees. I bet you could hold it there for almost a minute because the air is not moving. Your hand slowly heats up. Put your hand in a small, take a small jet engine where the exhaust is coming out at 60 miles an hour at 500 degrees. Put your hand into that exhaust stream. You'll burn the, the meat off your bones in, in a half a second. Right. That's the difference between a, a true fire and what the tests are. The other side that people all have to realize is if you've got a safe that was involved in a fire, do you know how hot it got? And the answer is no, you don't. So, Hardened steel starts breaking down around 340 to 380 degrees. It starts losing its hardness. Annealed steel starts breaking down about 620 to 680 degrees. If you've got chassis guns and, and non-wood guns, the wood, the wood will deteriorate at about 380, 400 degrees. Um, wood starts just to burn, and you'll see the damage. If your guns are in a fire in a safe, regardless of what they look like, should you ever shoot them? Mm. I'm going to say no. I mean, if you get ammo that's in a fire, you don't shoot that ammo. You don't, again, heat can change the property of ammo. If you want to, all of a sudden, if you've got a really hot round, especially if you're shooting a big caliber gun, I'm not doing it. If I've got a 300 wind mag that was in a fire, am I going to trust that bolt, <laughs> you know, you know, and the receiver right next to my cheek pulling the trigger? No, and you shouldn't. You got to look at in a true fire, 
your insurance is replacing your guns. Do not try to save your guns because you're you're chasing something you just can't save. If you got true relic, very very valuable guns, you know the best safe, the best fire safe in the world is underground. Conex boxes, yeah. buried Conex boxes, and there's a lot of companies that do that now, and it's a great way to secure firearms. But for the basic home user, all that weight for the uh, fire rating is is a waste because you end up with a safe that weighs you know 900 pounds. If you talk to any realtor, the two most left behind things when people move are hot tubs and gun safes. And the average American now moves every 6.3 years. Every three or four years, that number's dropping. People are becoming more mobile. People like their freedom. They like their mobility. And having these huge gun safes, it's, it's an albatross tied around your neck. That's why everything we make is either lightweight or ultralight. And, you know, my lightweight agile safe, which we can't prove it. We believe it's now the number one safe sold in America. Um, wow. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's it's not that we're this huge company. We're not. It's just, you know, Liberty and Canon, they all make, they make 75 different safes. I don't know what, I mean, they just make all these different safes. You know, we make three or four because they, they solve the problem. So the Agile being our number one safe, that specific model, we sell thousands of those a month. And I don't think anybody else can claim that. And that is a hundred pound gun safe. Holds six rifles, a whole lot of handguns with it and a lot of other gear. But once you bolt that down, does it matter whether it weighs 100 pounds or 600 pounds? It really doesn't. But the beauty of the lighter weight safes are you can relocate them in your home. They're small. So instead of buying one big heavy safe and having all your guns located in one spot, our Agile cabinets are affordable. They're six gun cabinets. And you can get, if you got a large collection, get three of them, put them in different locations. Again, I went through the, those, that decentralized mindset. We've also got smaller, you know, two rifle fast box type safes. So you can just take a look at your firearms and say, you know what? I'm going to store them where, where I want them. People with RVs. We sell a lot of our little fast boxes and our, our small cabinets for RV use because a lot of people have firearms in an RV and there's no safe place in an RV, but you certainly can create one. You know, I, I recently, uh, finished construction on on a new house and uh and moved my safes over got two obnoxiously heavy safes and my friends uh one of them had helped me move the safes the last time when i got out of the marines and he's like look dude never again like i love you but uh moving this safe twice is how much i love you not three times <laughs> it's I, I brutal moved them. It, it really is. And uh, we've been through it. It's, uh, but when you look at America and Americans and our lifestyles, we're going lighter. We're going faster. I look at people, when you're looking at gun safes, consider your hunting rig, your backpacking rig, your camp. If you're a backpacker or if you're going, like you can go back for days, or if you're a rock climber, you look at your gear down to the ounce, half ounce. I mean, I did some rock climbing in my youth and you get your gear, you lay it all out and you don't need that. And you're stripping down to the bare minimum because weight is your biggest enemy. Well, so many things in life now, we're going lighter, we're going faster. Clothing has gotten so, especially for hunting. What we wear clothing wise now, I go out when it's nine degrees out, I'm out all day and I'm comfortable. And the clothing's not crazy heavy and restrictive. And you look at the gun safes, 
you know, traditional gun safes, they were designed back in the late 60s, early 70s. They've never changed. Well, you know what? The world has. And you don't need to have this big dinosaur that you'll never move, that, you, that it's there. And if you put it in place and you're using it and decide you want to remodel part of your house or redo something, guess what? Unless you hire a company, you're not going up or down stairs with it. I mean, if it's one of the heavier safes, it's, it's very, very difficult. So we're just taking the, you know, 25 years of military armories just taught us that, you know what? The Marine Corps, every ounce matters. They, 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 we, we built for the Marine Corps, it's lightweight, very secure weapon storage because they want to not just take the guns. They want to take the racks <laughs> and they can load everything up and move pretty quickly. Um, and there's no reason civilians you know, and, and, have that same flexibility. And when I was deployed, we had basically nothing for, for secure storage. And there's, there's no way for us to be able to move secure storage to those remote port operating bases and combat outposts. You know, we're, we're living pretty poor out there. We didn't have, we didn't have much. So the, the closest thing we had to an armory was, uh, was the Connex, but mm -hmm. like my rifle pistol, the whole time, you know, they were either just on me or like under my cot or something. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't have that. If we would have had some lightweight options that were secure, that would have been really nice. Would have been really nice. It's um, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. A lot of it, again, we got a massive force. There's nothing you can do. We do build a lot of uh, Connex box type armories, mo mobile armories. Um, we used to build a ton of them, not, not as much anymore, but, uh, that it, it is tough. And I think, but I think as a Marine though, you're pretty much when you train, when you're deployed, if you're downrange, if you're in a hostile area, you basically carry it, sleep with it. Yeah. It's, you know? it's, it's with you all the time. Yeah. I was an officer, so I had a, and a tanker. So I had a, a handgun and a rifle and I didn't need to have both of them on me all the time. Right. Um, so during those times, it would have been really nice to have something that, that was secure that, that I could secure myself and I'm not going to go like hassle the armor, like, Hey, you know, I need to put my rifle away for, you know, the next 15 minutes or something. Uh, it, it would have been really nice to have a cleaner system. So I do think that there's a massive need to, to increase the efficiency on the military side, as, as well as the civilian side, and this is slightly off topic, but this this serialized inventory thing is is so incredibly serious for the Marines. It, if it's got a serial number on it, it does not get lost. Period. And like we will we will scour a battlefield. We'll go back to extremely hostile areas. We'll expose ourselves to IEDs, to sniper threats, to all kinds of garbage, just to find this one serialized thing that might have mm -hmm. fallen off somebody's gun. And something that was famous for that in training was the Peck 15, this little oh, yeah. junky laser that we were required to have on our rifles that nobody ever used. I never saw one get used in combat, ever, not once. And uh, and after a while in country, it's like, look, we have such a huge IED risk out here. There's no way that we're coming back to look for a piece of gear that we're not using. So I had all my Marines take their shit off and put it in the armory, like done. We're not going to deal with this anymore. And what a tragedy that, that we would have a piece of gear like that, that, you know, might be helpful under certain circumstances, but we're so afraid that we might lose it, that we 
really had to take them off in order to decrease the risk to to an acceptable level. Uh, and I, I do think that that conversation expands into military armories and then into you know personal armories for for civilians and, and gun safes in the home. Like you've got to be able to to take care of your stuff and know that it's secure all the time. It's very important. Well, another part that what we bring to the table, what we look at is, and it's happening now, you know, civilians mimic or trace changes to the military 10 to 15 years later. And now you look at your basic, your basic American gun owner, the volume gear associated with firearms is just growing exponentially. You know, I've got, I've got the gun wall behind me, but I go hunting now. I carry a lot of gear, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of tech and, our system coming from all that military gives you the ability to store and organize all of your associated gear with your firearms. A lot of people don't think about that, but it's having everything in one big spot. Like I, I use agile cabinets. I've got a big a wall of them in my house and I've got rifles, I've got gear and it breaks down and is organized. So, you know, Turkey season opens up soon. Well, I'm going to boom, boom, rifle. Gear. I organize all that gear together. Odd caliber rifles. I keep the cleaning kits. I keep am. I, mean, I keep all the things associated with that gun in bins right behind, right with that gun. If I'm working on a firearm, I've got some. I'm disassembling or working on a like an AR platform. All the parts stay in bins right with, right with those guns, and it's a it's a level of flexibility that civilians aren't aware of that they can have. And once you get it, once you understand the organization, it's like holy cow, does your life get easier? I mean, the, our industry sells a ton of hunting gear because hunting season shows up and guys can't find the piece they're looking for. So they just yeah. buy it. <laughs> you know? How do people, uh, how do you open an agile cabinet? It's all, it's, it's um, push button locks. Okay. Um, there's, there's a lot of tech coming into our space. Yeah. And we don't use biometrics for a very simple reason. And this comes from the back from the military. We, we use the term, maybe you're familiar with it, never fail equipment. And yeah. you know, if, if someone breaks into your home and they're shooting at you, you're safe. Is, that's never fail equipment. Biometrics fail. I mean, they fail all the time. If your hands are dirty, it won't open. If you're wearing gloves, it won't open. If your hands are really wet, it may not open. If you haven't reset the, the thing and you wait a year, year and a half, your, your fingers, I don't, fingerprints don't change, but the locks don't read well anymore. And you have to reset them. Um, there's so many reasons why a biometric, you can sit there and keep trying it to get it to work. Well, for convenience, you're sitting there, you got a couple of seconds, no problem. But if someone is shooting at you, it is a problem. And the testing we've done at training centers where guns are in secured racks using simunition where it hurts to get shot, it's not going to kill you, but you really don't like a shot. When you run those, those scenarios, People approach their safes. They always key in the combination. They never use the tech because they, they go back to, again, if you're being shot at, you're in fight or flight. You're going back to very primal thoughts, very simplicity. You get tunnel vision. Your dexterity gets bad. I mean, a lot of things physiologically change. Push button locks are easy. And we're actually going to a much larger button format. We're designing that right now in all of our safes. The other one is RFID. And this one is, I find, very problematic. I have a lot of experience. We designed a lot of RFID weapon storage inventory systems for the military back 2011, 2012, where they wanted to put tags on everything. When you walk out of the armory, you walk by a scanner and it scans soldier, 
gun and all the gear and matches it all up so they can track guys in and out. And that was a big buzz. They decided not to do it because they realized, you know what, we don't necessarily want this, this level of tracking on all of our guns, especially downrange. And they moved away. But in the civilian world, I see a lot of companies offering RFID access for their safes. You buy the safe and you get the little fobs that go on your keys. You get a little a bracelet. You get these little tags that you just wand in front of the safe when it opens. Well, that is painfully convenient. And when you have the tag in your hand, it's pretty quick. You're sitting in your home, having dinner. All of a sudden, the front door gets kicked in and you hear some gunfire. You're going to go find your fob, find your keys, or just simply key in your fingers. You know, it's faster just to use your fingers. And again, our, our locks, I can open our safe in, in less than two seconds. Yeah. It requires some practice. The other side of the fobs that people don't realize is when you buy a safe with RFID and it comes with four to six different tags and things, you're introducing key controls into your home security. That's something the military deals with on a regular basis. How do you secure the keys to all the locks? Well, these tags open your safes. So where do you put them all? Do you put them on your keys? Do your keys hang from a hook by your door? You know, there's you know, Hornaday makes a tag for their safe, for their, their rapid safe, and it says Hornaday rapid safe right on the tag. So they breaks into your house and they see this thing on your keys. Well, oh, it's a clue. That, they, they know you've got a safe and they've got the key to open it. And there's no, there's no true advantage. When people use our systems, we tell everybody, if you train, if you train diligently for firearms use, train for access. And if you're a handgun guy, you practice your dry fire drills, your draw drills, practice your access drills. Fast box under your bed, I've got one. We tell everybody in the first 30 days, every night you go to bed, turn the lights off, reach down deliberately, and not quick, just deliberately do your combination, open it, and then close it. Do that for 30 days. You're building muscle memory. After that, do it once a week. And you practice it. Just like this is like being a musician. You're practicing it very mechanically and very deliberately because you're building those, those neural pathways. So now in a true firefight, fight or flight, where your brain goes to jello and you're in panic mode, you're going to reach down and have that thing opened cleanly in, in a couple of seconds. What was that? the military used is... Uh, Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Is that the term? Or is that where it's, again, you're practicing these motions. Every time I pull a jacket out of my front hall closet, I open the closet up, I immediately go in, do, do, do. I do the combination, I open the door and then I just close it. I can do it so fast. I can do it with my eyes closed. But again, I never know if somebody, if all of a sudden I've got a conflict in my home that I've got to address. But I practice this every day so that when, if that does happen, I'm not thinking. I'm not, I don't have to think because truly, if people have never been in a true fight or flight scenario, you can't think. I always tell people, you know, have you ever, have you ever been to a car accident where you're the first one there? People aren't seriously hurt, but it was a hard hit. You get the guy sitting in his car, he's flushed. If you walk up and say, excuse me, are you okay? He goes, yeah. He goes, what's 17 minus six? He's going to look at you. And he goes, they can't give you the answer. Sure. Because in panic mode and fight or flight, your cognitive brain is shut down and all of your all of your processing goes down to your lower brain and it functions on instinct because you need to survive. It's fight or flight. If you practice things like access and build those neural pathways, get muscle memory, you don't need to think. You just do it instinctively. And that's what you're going after. That's why you practice your draws. That's why you practice all these drills. Access is the same thing. We're really big on 
if you're truly concerned about home defense, practice your access the way you practice everything else. So if I've got my, uh, you know, my, my DeWalt circular saw with a carbide blade on it, um, can I break into your safe? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, you know, I'm not, we're, we're not saying our safes are stronger. What yeah. we're saying, what we, what we propose is our safes are smaller. So you yeah. locate them, again, locate them where thieves don't look. If you came into my house where I'm having a party, I'm entertaining, a bunch of guys coming over, I'm some scotch and cigars in the backyard, whatever we're doing. You'd never know I own firearms. Yeah. There's no, there's no clues in my house that there's guns in the house because all my safes are discreetly located. Yet I'm never more than two seconds away from a firearm. Now I do have an office in my home with a, it's a secret door system where you open it up into the big display for the, you know, the, the, uh, the man cave badass look. And that's using a, uh, it's a hidden door system that nobody would ever even know the space exists. Yeah. Um, and we build a lot. We don't build those systems. We do the gun part of it, but we've been p- part of some amazing gun rooms, gun room systems. You know, there's a, there's a mistake that I've seen some people make with building gun rooms into homes where they'll, you know, put it into a basement or they'll put it into a room and they'll make some really thick concrete walls. Um, what happens is if you do that, you have, hundreds or more gallons of water that needs to come out of that concrete. And you're going to have to run big dehumidifiers that are going to pull out gallons of water out of the air every day for years. And if you don't, you're going to walk in there and your guns are going to look like a bunch of Cheetos because they're in a very high humidity environment. It is. It's um, when you look at, you know, fire ratings and things, if you're concerned about fire rating of an actual gun room, I like the Aircrete products, which is it's cement, but it's foam injected and they use yeah. it as insulation. And yes, there's a water content to it, but it dries fairly quickly. It doesn't, I mean, there's so little concrete that a block of the foam cement, like a 12 inch by 12 inch block weighs not even a pound. It's really light. It's really, it's crumbly, but in the walls, the R values through the roof. And I tell people use two by sixes. Um, you know, most of the stuff we do is double up your drywall and uh, buy fire rated drywall, double it up and uh, use two by sixes. And you got a pretty secure room. Again, if it's a secret room, it, you don't have to worry too much about security if nobody knows. It's there. If you're diligent about not showing off your cool room to everybody, most secure rooms, nobody would ever know that the room is part of the house. And guys breaking in, they're not taking the time. They're moving so fast. Yeah. Those statistics and and that information that you gave about how a criminal enters and moves through a home, uh, I think that's tremendously valuable because most of us are, are not thieves. So it's hard for us to think about how that person thinks. It, it, it's hard to the point of being impossible to figure out, okay, this is this is how somebody's thinking as they're going through my home when they're going through a house. I mean, that's, that's just, that's stuff that I would not have known on my own. Um, very, very valuable information. I, I appreciate, you know, that information as much as anything else that you've said so far on this show. I hope people paid attention. Yeah, I hope so. It's, 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 it's out there. You know, we, we spent a lot of time mining data, mining information, looking for, you know, again, we're, we're always, how do we, how do you make it faster? 
how do you make it simpler? I'm a big believer in sim- simplicity and everything we do. Um, we have directions to assemble our cabinet. Like our agile cabinet ships flat. You assemble it. Um, your first cabinet will take you 15 to 20 minutes to assemble. Your second one will take you three to seven minutes. Cause you just, you got to kind of lay it out and look at it, but it's really, really simple. There's no directions for how to use our stuff. It's, it just, it's very intuitive. Um, you know, I just look at it. Most people have like that junk drawer in your kitchen, you know, all the crap in there. And what you got in there typically is a screwdriver, pair of pliers, duct tape. You know, you keep the simplest tools handy because you solve the most problems with the simplest tools. And we look at gun storage in our cradle grid system as it's the simplest thing we can come up with. And it solves the most problems. Certainly in the military, which is transitioning now into the consumer world, this idea of gear and guns, high value gear associated with your firearms. And uh, I mean, everybody shoots with optics now. I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you might have a scope on a gun or two, but most guys were shooting iron sights. Yeah. Uh, a scope was a luxury. And now I know very few people who hunt with iron sights. And they do, they do it almost as a, as like a badass novelty thing. It's, oh yeah, well, I'm going iron sights this year. You know, just as a, as a retro thing. Um, yeah. And we're starting to see that in, in handguns. Now people are yeah. losing some of their fear around uh, pistol optics. Yeah. And it, it's a simple enough conversation for, for me to have, because it can be like, look, if you, if you put a red dot on your pistol, all it's going to do is make you faster and more accurate. So if you're interested in those things, then do it. If you are not interested in those things, then don't put a red dot on. Um, and some red dots are finally getting to the point where people can use them out in the real world. And I, I am very critical of, of competitive shooters um, because I see only subtle differences between a lot of competitive shooters and, you know, like larpers that dress up in medieval stuff and smack each other around in the park uh (laughs) if if you're only ever shooting on a range then you'll probably never realize that a single pine needle can render a red dot useless um so we're starting to see red dot uh pistol sights like the like the sig romeo 2 that's an enclosed system now i can use that thing if it's snowing if it's raining if if i'm out in the wild and need to use this gun and it needs to work all the time regardless of the conditions so as, as more people start to pick up on, on this stuff that, you know, is, is a little bit being led by the military, but in other ways, the civilians are, are trying to show the military a, a better way. There's, there's some cat and mouse going on there with the advances in technology. It, it's, it's just getting better all the time. And I, I think that for people to look back at what you're talking about with shooting iron sights and then having something like a, like a peep sight as the, you know, the, the penultimate, uh, you know, example of, of technology for shooting long range, like that's just so antiquated now, but it's really not very far removed. It's, it's a few decades ago. It is. And it's also, you know, if you practice and train with a peep site, you're gonna be very, I mean, you can be, they can be amazingly accurate if you practice and train with it. And, you know, to, to hit on that real quick, people, a lot of people, they, they go to the range, they like to shoot. How many people practice and train 
for the scenarios they may be facing. And I always I talk to you about that is, you know, train how you fight. And if you're if you've got a fast access gun next to your bed, what's the distance to your door? Okay, to your bedroom door. That's that's probably where your threat's going to be pretty close. You know, and, and what position are you in? So practice shooting from a lying position on your side, like you're in bed. Practice one need you know practice those scenarios where this is where this this is this is what would happen if I was home. You know, what are the distances and what are the what are the obstacles? And try to train for those. I always try to tell people if you're gonna don't if you're just gonna go to the range and go plinking, that's great. But if you want to improve your safety, look at the scenarios that could present themselves and try to mimic those. I have, I'm a big believer in outside help. I take every, I go to every course, every, you know, I've done some three, various three-day courses to, I do, whenever I get a chance to do a training course with somebody, I'll always, if I got the time, I, I, some of my, I, you know, I'm beyond some of them. Not, I, mean, I always learn something. I always have a blast and every trainer out there will teach you something. I, I agree. I think that training, it, is a lot of fun and I've never been to one that I didn't learn something from. Yeah. Even the ones that I was teaching at, I learned stuff from it. Yeah. Um, maybe even especially those, but they're, they're a really good time and it's, it's so important to continue that education, keep an open mind because there are new techniques that are getting developed and you'll go to one trainer and he'll get you shooting like this. And then the next school you go to, they'll be like, oh, that guy was all wrong. You take the pieces from every one of them that eventually come together to build up the style that you need for the situations that you need to shoot in. And suddenly you're a very, very lethal person that doesn't miss anymore. Um, and that's that's what it's all about. We talk about firearm safety rules all the time and um, pr probably not often enough. And it, it is something that, that I should talk about more, but something that does get left out of that is, is the, the imperative that we keep our guns safe when we're not around them. Um, those firearm safety rules are, are really built around when they're, when they're in your hands. So I think that what you're doing by, by making gun safes better is, is important for everyone, for everyone involved, whether they're the gun owners or or not, there is a responsibility to keep those guns secure when they're not under your direct control. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there. I talked to a lot of people say, Tom, yeah, I love what you're saying. Cause look, I just spent two, you know 2,500 bucks on this huge safe. I said, I said, nothing wrong with that. I said, you, you've got it. You've got it. You can keep your guns locked. I go, if you want to improve your defensive capability, keep the bulk of your guns in your safe, pull out one, just buy, buy a small, fast, little fast box or buy, buy a small, fast, and put one in your front hall closet, put one in your kitchen. As I always tell people, kitchens is, is, is the most neglected place to have a secured firearm. It's where people spend the bulk of their time in a home and a den and thieves ignore kitchens. It's such a secure location, but you know, for what we do, if you've got a big traditional safe and you've got some pretty high-end rifles, we also now, we offer our cradle grid system in small panel systems you can install into a traditional gun safe. You can gut the whole safe and put our system in. You can remove just a portion of that interior. They come out pretty easily and just do half the safe. Um, there's a lot of options that way, but it just gives you the flexibility. Um, you know, safes don't, traditional gun safes don't use what I would call proper weapon storage. Meaning, you know, in our system, which again is designed 
for military standards, all guns are stored free and clear, meaning guns are never touching guns. All guns are stored in one row. You're never putting guns behind guns. Um, you know, traditional gun safe, you got it packed full of guns. A, you can't get to the one in the back without laying stuff all over the ground. Also, you could have a 22 missing. If you got 30 guns packed, in, you know, that you'd never get. Let's say you got 20 guns packed into a 40 gun safe. If one's missing, do you know it? I'm going to say you could be missing a gun for a year or longer. You might not know it. All our safes are shallower. So it's one row of guns. We, we use the term organizational awareness. And that's, you know, doing sight counts in the military. You open the door, you glance at it, you know right away if anything's missing. It's just, it's that quick. Plus the flexibility of the saddle system allows you to store, whether it's a big chassis gun, long range precision rifle next to an MP5, next to a lever action, next to a shotgun, the saddle system adjusts. So every gun is properly stored. You're never going to lose zero. You're never going to have any kind of damage on the firearms. Whereas the traditional gun safes are just that, that row of particle board, with the little W's in it. And you kind of try to fit the guns in as best you can. Um, it's almost like the guns were an afterthought. I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure what the history of that type of storage is. But they and when also, they say it's a forty, yeah, yeah. sorry, a forty, when they say a it's 40 a forty gun, gun safe. safe. Yeah, that that's like when 16, they say it's yeah. a you know six person tent. Like yeah, right. Well, <laughs> back in the day, if it was you and like five girls, okay. <laughs> uh, that was yeah. never my day. No, that was no, never my neither. day. But no, that's, you know. Uh, Living through others, but capacity. Maybe if I was a heavy metal guitar player, I could have some go. stories like that. The uh, yeah, I met with Liberty years ago when we first went in the retail. We, I, I said, you know what? Let's license our technology and talk to safe companies. I didn't, I didn't know anything about gun safes. And we scheduled a meeting. I flew out and met with their senior team, and we we're looking at their Fat Boy Junior, which we had decked one out with our cradle grid system. And he said, Tom, he goes problem is that system only holds 12 rifles in the safe. And I said, that safe holds 12 rifles. He said, Tom, that's a 40 gun safe. I'm saying with all due respect, you'll never store 40 guns. In fact, we had the safe at our office. We wanted to see how many it was it would held. We had 18 guns in there and it was packed. I mean, we had a mix of AR platforms, some chassis guns. We had a lot of different guns in there. Even I went to straight lever action rifles and bolt rifles with no optics. I was about 26. Yeah. And, and his response was, well, that's our industry's little white lie. And that was a response. That I'm just like, wow. And he, and he just, you know, they say, they say 30, we say 32. I'm just thinking customers are smarter than this. And it's gotten so bad because they're all doing the same thing. And I'm not, I'm not trying to bag on the safe industry. You know what? They, they make a, the quality of their construction is solid. They make a solid product. It's, they're so tied to 1968. And they're so tied to these old ways of doing things. Um, and you look at the leadership team, a lot of these companies, and they're not firearms people. I mean, they're, they're, most of the big safe companies are owned by venture capital firms. Again, I got no problem with capitalism. I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I believe in, in letting people make choices, make decisions, and uh, live their lives and build their businesses. If folks want to sort of uh, learn more about, yeah. about your system, if like, do they need to buy it at a retail store? Do they order it from you? Like, how, how do they find out more? Where do they buy it if they want one? Yeah, we are, we are for the most part, direct to consumer. Um, okay. But cut, we cut out, we, we used to sell through stores. The problem is 
their big box retailers all want to make 40% margin. So that means your prices are higher. It's just, it's, and we also, our system in a safe store next, like in a safe distributor, you put our system next to gun safes. Nobody understood what it was because gun safes are designed to look really cool empty because that's how you evaluate them. Our system, nobody understands it, but you fill our system with guns and it looks freaking great. It looks great. So we canceled that whole program years ago, went direct. And now in the digital world, we can show our, through video, through animated, we can show exactly how the system works. And when we made that change, that's when our sales really started taking off. So if you want to learn more, just Google the word secure it as one word. Um, our retail site is secureitgunstorage.com. We also have secureittactical.com, which is the military side of the, of the business. But just Googling secure it, we have a ton of content out there. If you don't want to go through that pain, you can just go down to the podcast description and we will have links to all this sure. stuff. You can just click on it and take you straight there. Yeah, and it's uh, you can start small. I was, you know, when you look at decentralized storage, you don't need to come in like, holy crap, I got to buy five cabinets. No, just buy, just buy one, one little handgun, handgun safe, a little, a little rifle fast box. And just, you know, it's something you can do over a period of time. That's how I did my house over the course of I mean, my house over the course of seven, eight years went from a gun room to now I've got, I mean, I've got guns really all over my house and you would be hard pressed. To I mean, again, if I told you go find some safes, you know what my stuff looks like. Yeah, you're gonna start after we talk. You start digging, but the average person in my house, they have no idea that I own firearms. Well, I think that's great. I think that's pretty cool, uh, Tom. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the information. Um, you're you're an interesting guy, and you've done some interesting things. And I think that you've got a, a bright future for this company. Well, thank you very much. We're we're really excited about you know, the next few years, we're, we're really driving on the performance side of, of our industry and really trying to associate secure it with the performance side of shooting me, how you shoot, you train, and now access is part of that performance package. So we're, we're going to be hosting a whole lot of events now this year. We're, we started our first event uh, a couple of months ago. Second one's coming up in June. We're bringing people together for two to three days of firearms training, access training, and it's a whole, you know, the whole holistic idea of safety, security, being prepared, both mentally, physically, you know, all aspects of it. And uh, we're hoping those events that we can get enough of a team of companies together to just, I'd love to run one of those events every month just all over the country and get more and more people involved in this broader thinking of safety, security, access, performance, it's just the whole package. Well, keep me in the loop. I'd love to attend something like that. I'll do it. I will do it. Love to get out to uh, you know, God's country out your way. It's beautiful, beautiful. In fact, I'm going to be out in uh, Bozeman, Montana next week. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that. <laughs> yeah. No, Bozeman's a, Bozeman's a cool place. There's some good folks there. A bunch of hipsters there too, but there's, yep. there's some good folks in Bozeman. I think you'll have a good time. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Okay, sir. Well, thanks again. And, uh, have fun out in Montana. I'll do it, man. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. 
For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.